Hi, and welcome back to Game Time Podcast with your hosts, I'm Alex Rubinson. And I'm Shai Dweck. The NFL free agency period has now passed, and boy, was there a lot of chaos stirring. We're going to cover all the major pieces, switching teams, along with a few blockbuster trades that transpired just over a week ago that really shook up this year's NFL draft. So, Shai, let's jump right into it, because it's... Game time. So, Shai, where are we going to lead off here today? Well, it seems only fitting, Alex, that we start with the most recent, arguably the biggest piece of news, and that is the blockbuster trades made right as we move. They were made about a week ago, if I remember correctly, but as we move into April, draft month, Alex, they feel still just as relevant. So, the details. Miami Dolphins, who had the third overall pick, traded it to the San Francisco 49ers, dropping to 12. San Francisco moves up to 3, likely to snag a quarterback that will sit behind Jimmy G for some period of time this season, according to what we've been hearing from John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan. That that the Dolphins will receive they're obviously the 12th pick. It's a pick swap, as well as two first-round picks, one from twenty, one from next year and one from the year after, so 2021-2022, from San Francisco, and a third-round pick from this year. But Just, just, uh, a, quick, just yeah. a quick correct correction. It's 2022 and 2023. Important correction, 22 and 23. That's where those first-round picks, along with the 12th overall pick and the third-rounder in and a 2021 third rounder. So I just want to point that out to avoid any confusion. Yes, thank you, Alex. As well, the Dolphins weren't done yet as they trade back up to the number six spot with the Philadelphia Eagles. The Dolphins gave up their own first round pick from next year to make that move. If I am correct, Alex. So now we have... The Eagles sit at number 12. The Dolphins are sitting at number 6. And the San Francisco 49ers emerge with the third overall pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, Alex. Yeah, this was definitely, I think, one of the crazier half-hour half hours in football in quite some time. And I know that it was chaotic, hectic, but... It was definitely exciting, and it kind of reminded us how fun and exciting the NFL is, especially coming uh, as we get closer to the draft and how draft time is. And, you know, I kind of made this joke. It was just a day after the NBA trade deadline, so all this trade speculation and blockbuster deals were kind of centered around the NBA, and then I feel like the NFL just a day later kind of said, hold hold our beer, and made their own two blockbuster deals that – took the uh, sports world by storm. So I think let's start with, I think, the Miami Dolphins here as they were involved in both these deals. I think they've emerged as, at least in the Niners part of the deal, the clear winner. Whenever you can get multiple first-round picks down the line, that's how you build a team that will have sustainable success. 
you know, there are a lot of really good teams out there, but there are not that many that can build their team the right way through the draft and have sustained success. Now, they do have to hit on those picks, but, you know, at the end of the day, the NFL is kind of like a dartboard. And the more darts you have, the better, you know, the higher chance you will at hitting a bullseye. And that's kind of what Miami did here. They gathered more darts, and now they're going to have more chances at hitting at hitting that bullseye, uh, and, and they're going to have great chances as those picks, you know, will be first rounders. And so I think this is just, I think, a great deal by Miami. Whenever you have a top three pick and don't take a, and are not planning on taking a quarterback, <clears throat> New York Giants, uh, you should trade out. You should absolutely one hundred percent trade back because you're going to get this type of king's ransom especially when we are entering a draft that is absolutely locked and loaded at the quarterback position i you know there's not i think there's not much to say here but at the same time i can't say enough of how much i love this move from the dolphins and at the same time sitting at six overall you're still sitting pretty pretty comfortably to the point where there's a very good chance a player you are targeting at three could very well be available at six, just because of how locked it, of how loaded this quarterback group is. Quarterbacks always get pushed up the board to the point where we could see up to four quarterbacks in the top five or so picks. So the Dolphins could still be getting one of their top two, three players at six overall. So great move by the Dolphins. Great move by Brian Flores and Chris Greer, and obviously their strategy and their strategic planning both now and in the future and this trade i think just kind of is almost the umbrella of how they conduct business and it just shows that they know what they're doing and they have the right mindset in terms of competing in 2021 but also building their team the right way uh, to support their young already young and up-and-coming team in 2022 2023 and beyond so shy we'll kind of get into the other aspects about these trades but first your thoughts on the miami Dolphins side of both of these deals. I think I I completely agree with everything that you've mentioned there Alex. I think the ability to as you said it uh to move back out of a top 3 spot cuz they were not targeting a quarterback. They feel comfortable with Tua as I think they should. And now they can still take one of those probably the top weapon unless Cincinnati or Atlanta decide to uh you know, roll the dice on a Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith, which I find to be unlikely. So they're likely going to be left, likely, with their top choice of pass catcher, which is likely who they're targeting with this spot. It's When you can still get the player that you love, the player that you're targeting, and then profit first-round picks from it, when you're likely going to take the same player at three overall, it's a no-brainer for Miami. And on the other side of the trade, I don't want to make it seem like this is a heist because I really feel good about the other how the other teams did. And you can say Miami won, but I'm almost a little hesitant to go there because I think in a stacked quarterback class as this is, and you mentioned if you're not taking a quarterback, you got to move out of the top three, you're going to get a king's ransom. But at the same time, San Francisco getting into that top three to get a stud quarterback at that spot, likely a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance, 
is simply fantastic in my view to groom him under Jimmy G and to emerge with a franchise quarterback because simply put they don't feel comfortable with Jimmy G as the long-term solution as they shouldn't he's had injury concerns he's shown inability in my opinion to perform um at the level necessary when the, when the time when the lights are brightest so in my opinion, I love this move for San Francisco and then even quickly to Philadelphia. The same point, you're moving out of a pick where when you look at Philly's needs, unless they want to take a quarterback, which is no sure thing at six, you're still getting a similar caliber player at 12. So I, I feel very good about what all these uh, teams did here, and I really think they're all winners, Alex. Eagles can have up to three first-round picks in next year's draft now after acquiring Miami's first for next year. I love this trade for Philly. I know a lot of Eagles fans, they had their sights in on Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase, and they wanted one of those top playmakers, and I understand that. But the Eagles are a long ways away from winning. And this is a team that has many holes up and down the roster, offensively, defensively, you name it. So when you're in that position, when you're in a position of rebuilding, you're trying to accumulate as many picks as possible. And that's exactly what Philly did here. There's a, I think there is a scenario where Jalen Hurts can be successful, and this is a team that still wins six games. So Philly's just not in a position to win. Look, a bad division again. Maybe they can win the division at 9-8, and 8-9. Eight, eight and but again... I think that can also be misleading for that organization. This is a team that's obviously rebuilding. And so far, I think they've had a very good offseason just in terms of stockpiling future draft picks. The Niners obviously are kind of the haymakers of all this because they're at number three overall. They're in the top three. They're taking a quarterback. We don't really know who that quarterback is. And I think with now the Jaguars, you know, 98% they're taking Lawrence, I'd say. And now it's becoming stronger by the day that it looks like the Jets are going to be taking Zach Wilson. It really looks like now the draft is going to start at three with the Niners. And I'll say this. They better get this pick right. This is the type of move that really could define how a head coach, how a general manager, how a regime or a front office is remembered. I think, you know, John Lynch has done a solid job. He's had his misses, but he's done a decent job. Kyle Shanahan's obviously done a great job. But this is a move that if it doesn't work, no one's going to, in my mind, no one's going to remember what they did before then. No one's going to remember what the Niners, how John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan were as a head coach and GM before this trade, if this trade doesn't work. If it does work, San Francisco is going to go berserk and, I don't know, there might be statues of these men. That's the type of magnitude that this type of acquisition, you know, the type of attention that this acquisition brings on. This trade, they better get this right. And it's bold. Because I think, you know, I think Rob was a solid quarterback. And um, remember, you know, I know, you know, a lot of people are bashing on Garoppolo. He did almost win a Super Bowl, and I know they did have a great defense and a great running game. That you know, he didn't. You wouldn't say he led that team, but I will say that he was almost a super a the 
starting quarterback of a Super Bowl winning team, which is very difficult to do, especially in today's NFL, when the quarterback position is more important than it ever has been. And yes, he didn't win the Super Bowl. I know that. But I still think that's still, you know, an, somewhat of an accomplishment in its own right. But this is the boldest of the bold moves you can make. And if you're that regime, you have to get it right. Because for better or worse, you're always going to be remembered for what you did in the 2021 draft, trading up from 12 to 3 and who you took with that pick. That's going to be your legacy defining move. And we've got to see if they're going to get it right or not. And I, don't, I also think this is a move that whether they take Mac Jones, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, we can't say yay or nay. We can't say yay or nay when Roger the second Roger Goodell announces that pick. That's not how this works. We're going to have to see it play out. But as I said, this is a franchise-altering move and a move that will define how this franchise might be perceived over the next four to five years. I agree with that, but I think that the level of boldness here is necessary. I've been calling for San Francisco to try to you know, potentially take a quarterback 12 as Trey Lance's stock has continually rised. That's not a possibility anymore for them. So I think to potentially get this guy, I understand how bold it is and how much capital you're giving up. But to put yourself in a position where you feel comfortable, where where you probably likely feel as as a quarterback away from really, really competing. Because with Jimmy Garoppolo, that's probably not going to cut it. And to be completely frank, in my opinion, he is the reason that they lost in the Super Bowl. The primary reason is because I understand he is a game manager. But at a certain point, you need to have a quarterback who is good enough to win you a Super Bowl. Because that is the ultimate goal. If that... If that um, is not Jimmy Garoppolo, then this move is absolutely warranted. So, again, it will define a lot in what this franchise looks like and potentially compromise their ability to add young players in the future should, you know, you know, no matter what. But they're in such a good spot with the rest of their team and their building blocks that I think it makes sense and they should feel comfortable with this move, Alex. If you have any uh, more thoughts on those trades before we move on to the spending spree that is the new, that the New England Patriots went on in the first, really, 48 hours of free agency. Yeah, I just kind of want to add one more thought on the San Francisco 49ers, if you don't mind. When you take a quarterback in the top three and miss it can set your franchise back a few years. And I know the Cardinals, they stunk, got the number one pick next year, and kind of took a quarterback back-to-back years in the top ten. You just don't see that very often. So you usually you know, set your franchise back a few years if you take a quarterback in the top three to five and miss. When you take a quarterback in the top three to five, and then and you know by trading up, you've given, uh, you've given up your few, two future ones and if you miss on that, that can set your franchise back for up to five to seven years. So I just I just wanted to kind of say how how much is riding on this one pick. 
Yeah, I think I disagree with you just slightly on that point, Alex, because of the position the 49ers are and the rest of their roster. I think it will set them back in terms of the quarterback. They haven't had some great contracts over over the years. And, you know, guys like, you know, Nick Bosa are going to have to eventually be paid. And he's coming off the torn ACL in his own right. So we don't even know how he's going to react coming off the major injury. So... I, again, I think that's right, but I still think my point stands, Alex. We can talk about this all day. Let's move on now to Bill Belichick possibly going a little senile, Alex, uh, with these with really a plethora of uh, free agent signings that were made, and really the the majority of them being in the first forty eight hours of free agency. I want to start with Matt Judon. Uh, coming over from Baltimore on a four-year, $54 million deal. What were your initial thoughts on that move, Alex? Yeah, the, look, when everyone else zigs, it's up who's going to be the one that zags. And for years, it's you see money being thrown around and the Patriots not being big spenders. Now, when all these teams don't have the money to spend, and they're you know being more reserved. They're lowballing guys. The Patriots say, "Hey, we have the resources. Let's be aggressive." So when all these teams are going one way, the Patriots still stick to their, "Hey, we have resources. We see a market that we can exploit. Let's go. Let's go do that. Let's go explore that possibility." That's what the Patriots did. The Judon move in particular, I, I like that move. Uh, he got. Right, right around fourteen million a year, if my math is correct. And to be honest, it's usually not correct. So, you might have, throughout this podcast, you might have to double and triple check my math. Shy, I might be about fourteen million is correct, Alex. Right, right. Initially, I think I even saw it was fifty-six million, which would have put it right at fourteen million per year. It could have been because of the pandemic, kind of you know slowed things down, and the big offers weren't there for a lot of these guys. But I kind of thought Judon would command in the 15 to 16 million range. So, you know, this isn't like a huge steal by any stretch of the mat, of the imagination. But I actually thought 14 million was, you know, a fair price. I believe it's around, what, 32 million guaranteed, although I could be wrong. I think that. Uh, but I did, I did like this move. Uh, you know, the Patriots really haven't had this alpha rush, edge rusher there in a while. So, I think on a defense that, you know, could be aging a bit, Judon, I think, yes, he's a veteran, but he's also does bring some youth to the mix. I actually did really like this move for the Patriots. Again, I thought Judon was in line for a deal at around 15 to 16 million a year. So I think 14 million a year on a market that usually we see, you know, ex, you know exceed expectations. I actually thought, again, 14 million a year was a very fair price. I like the player, Alex. I like the need. I like the fit. And I realize, in my opinion, it's a little bit of an overpay. I think when we compare him to some other guys on the market, if we're comparing him to maybe a Bud Dupree, he got around $16.5 million a year. In my opinion, Bud Dupree fits the, the, the bill of an alpha male like pass rusher that will get to the quarterback consistently and has shown that. And can also produce in the run game. Matt, and I'm familiar with both of these guys. They both play in the same division. As a Steelers fan who watched a lot of AFC North football, 
Matt Judon is not a fantastic run defender. You saw his snaps decrease, maybe because of the addition of Yannick Ngakwe to Baltimore, but nonetheless, his snaps decreased, his production was decreasing, and it just feels like he's not on the top end of his trajectory right now. So I think the price seems to be a little rich for me, but I do think it's a very solid signing just considering the need that they need to fill, the veteran, the leadership, and a guy who can and potentially mentor guys like Chase Winovich and Joss Uche, two young Michigan edge rushers on that defensive line. So I I think I'm going to be a little less high than you are just because of the contract. I think we're both fans of this signing. And let's quickly just get to the two tight ends real quick. So I know the Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, their $12.5 million per year figure is about the same. It'll make them around the third highest paid tight end, both of them. Or I guess now it's kind of third and fourth highest paid. But that's you know right behind George Kittle and Travis Kelsey. I think that kind of makes sense for a guy like Hunter Henry, who's done it for a longer stretch than Johnny Smith. Has Johnny Smith ever had more than 500 yards receiving in a season? And I know the tight end position is more than that. But I don't think he has. So, again, especially with the Hunter Henry deal being shorter, I mean, he's had some injury concerns. But I actually really like this Hunter Henry deal. I was a little uneasy uh, about the Johnny Smith deal. Twelve and a half for him, again, coming in at around the third highest paid tight end in the league. That's probably a little too rich for my blood. I would have probably preferred in the nine to ten million dollar range for a guy of Smith's skill set and what he's accomplished so far at the NFL level. But I don't mind the idea of signing both these tight two tight ends. It allows the Patriots to be multiple, to get creative. You can run two tight end sets and look, this isn't gonna be, you know, the Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez days. These two players aren't what those two were. But you can definitely, I think, be creative in design and offense, similar in the sense that, you know, scheme around your tight ends, especially because these two tight ends are capable blockers. You know, it can also, you know, disguise some things in, you know, in the run game. So I don't, I don't mind the idea of signing two tight ends. I think it allow, it allows a new, it adds an element to your offense. And I actually thought the Hunter Henry deal was right in line. I believe he made 11 million last year, and that seemed like a pretty good deal. Uh, on the franchise tag last year. So I really like the Hunter Henry deal. I'm not so keen on the uh, Johnny Smith one. Yeah, Alex, I think I wasn't super keen on either of these deals. Again, it's more of I like one fit. I really do like the, the especially the Johnny Smith fit, because I think he embodies what the Patriots are looking for at tight end. Although he hasn't had that kind of... Um, Five, he's, still young, he's, he's still young, though. He's still young. Exactly. But he hasn't had one of those breakout receiving games. But he is a very good blocker. He's a vertical threat, a red zone threat, um, who can act as kind of a safety blanket for you. And I, very physical. And I think you compare to Hunter Henry, who both have had some injury concerns, both of those guys. But Johnny Smith has been more healthy considerably throughout his career, his young career at that. So I like that signing maybe a little bit more in terms of the fit. Again, in terms of money, I'm not a huge fan of either. And it's 
And one of the reasons, as you said, it's third and fourth highest paid tight ends in the league. One of the reasons is not only have these guys probably not lived up to that, you know, to be the third and fourth, because they're clearly not the third and fourth best tight ends in the league by any sense. And that's often not how the market works. But when you pay two guys that amount of money, it kind of makes me more uneasy than if you would have paid one. Because then you're paying, you know, you filled the position and you've maybe overpaid, but you still but you, have gotten the you need. Can have multiple, uh, I'll say you can have multiple tight ends on the field at once. I completely agree with you, Alex. But they remember, they selected two third-round tight ends last season. Well, that, that's admitting that those were mistakes. They're basically admitting that the, those were mistakes of picks. And I think the worst thing you can do is know maybe you had a mistake and then double down on the mistake. And they... They realized it was a mistake. They owned up to their failures in that, you know, in that category, in that, you know, with those picks, and said we have to upgrade at this position. It's only one year, though, Alex. But they also they they know their players better than anyone, so it's also more than just their their stats or whatever. They saw their evaluations and thought we can you know upgrade with more proven commodities. I, I think that's fair, but I think when you look at the injury history of Hunter Henry and the lack of production of Johnny Smith, I think it makes it a little bit more, makes me a little bit more uneasy to pay both of them because, especially to overpay both of them, as we both kind of agree that it was, because you're you're filling two spots, but you're, again, lack of production in one and injury significant injury concerns, in my opinion, with the other, even if he has produced. Well, the Patriots did. They had money to spend. They decided to spend it. I think. I think they did a solid job. You know, I don't. I don't think this is an A grade of a free agent class. But I don't know. I, it seems like I'm more keen on what they did than you are. I, yeah, I'm not. You know, doing backflips. But I thought they. I think they did a solid job overall with these. Bigger signings. <clears throat> they obviously also signed Jalen Mills to a the four year deal for Mills. I was a little surprised by the four year deal for Mills. I was a little, I, the six million per year figure. I actually didn't mind at all, but I expected him to get you know more of a two year deal or three year deal than the four year deal. Uh, Eleven per, million per year for Aguilar seemed a bit rich. Uh, he does add a speed element. We'll see if their quarterback can throw a deep ball. I don't. I, do we even know if their quarterback can throw a deep ball to Aguilar? I I don't think he can. My thoughts on Cam Newton have been made extremely clear on this podcast. <laughs> so I think like you know Kendrick Bourne. I think that was actually an okay signing. I like Bourne. You know I think Aguilar and Bourne were complementary pieces. So they're they're building an offense though. I think I'm with you though. Like. I still don't really trust their quarterback, and I don't. They're gonna. I think they're gonna make a move at quarterback before training camp opens. I'd be very surprised if their quarterback room stays the same as it stands today. So I guess kind of those three moves were obviously not headline grabbers. I thought they were okay moves, but uh, there are definitely some pubs. There was definitely some puzzling looks uh, about those moves too, specifically the per year figure on Aguilar and then the four years on Jalen Mills. That really caught my attention and 
made me raise an eyebrow. Yeah, Jalen Mills is a guy who, one, is going to act as very much a depth piece for this team. Their secondary is still quite good. They have guys who can play. They have they, Stephon Gilmore. They might be trading Gilmore. They could Gilmore be, could be out the door. Gilmore could be up out the door. But they still have guys like J.C. Jackson, Jonathan Jones. And I understand that, you know, Jalen Mills is, is, is a solid player. But he's also a guy that's had some injury concerns. As well as the fact that, you know, you're paying $6 million a year for a guy who is on has really been on one of the worst secondaries in the NFL of late. And hasn't made it a ton better, in my opinion. Has gotten exposed a couple times on those double moves for not being undisciplined. Something that Bill Belichick, I think, you know, clearly would not covet. So I I, I was a little puzzled by that, I will say. Uh, again, I agree at Nelson Aguilar. Very interesting move. I think he can be a high upside guy. But to free the amount that you paid him, I don't necessarily think it's low risk. For Kendrick Bourne, very underrated um, and I think you probably paid him maybe a little more than I would have. But again, I think it's a very underrated player who can uh, be a guy, kind of a number two, I think, potentially, um, next to Julian Edelman. So if you have a combination of Aguilar, Bourne, Edelman in the slot, it could be an interesting wide receiver corpse as we go in to next year. Yeah, I feel like they still might be missing a number one, but I, I think they do have a little bit of everything. They have the size with the two tight ends and even, you know, Nikhil Harry. You know, he's been pretty much a bust, but if they do hold on to them, he does bring some size. They have their slot guy in Edelman, and now they do introduce more of an idea of speed of Aguilar. And, yeah, I really do like the I do like the Kendrick Bourne signing. I think he can, at worst, be a, a, good, a really good three. So those are kind of our thoughts on the New England Patriots' Bill Belichick spending spree. Now we're going to kind of move a little broader into some of the markets, some of the bigger and possibly smaller markets um, of this free agency. We're going to start with pass rusher. Um, I'm going to bring up a signing that kind of took us both by surprise. Um, Not an edge rusher, but more of a... uh, more of an inside guy in Trey Hendrickson signing a four-year, $60 million deal, um, average of $15 million a year for the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, look, he's one of the more underrated players in the NFL, especially in terms of fan, fan knowledge. Uh, I like Hendrickson. I think he, he was very good opposite of Cameron Jordan with the Saints, and he had this great breakout year. But to give him $15 million a year, and that's also like, I don't love to compare contracts, but that's also why I was a little more, you know, I, I, I was a little, I was fine uh, with the $14 million per year around for Judon. $15 million a year for Hendrickson just seemed like a lot to me. Again, double-digit sacks this past year. The Bengals are really banking on that being the true Trey Hendrickson, and maybe it is. But I think I would have loved to see more before giving him out, before giving him that type of long-term deal. Again, if it were a two-year $30 million or a three-year forty-five, million, I'd probably be higher on this deal. But the four years at $15 million, 
I I do not like I do not like this deal, especially you know Carl Lawson signed for fifteen million a year, and I don't know. I thought they were similar players. I know Hendrickson had a better year than Lawson this past season, but I also thought that Lawson may have been a little more consistent. That's just my that, that might just be my view. So no, you could have gotten Lawson at the same per year range for even less years. He signed a three year deal with the Jets. Lawson did. I was just a little bit puzzled by that, by Cincy's decision. And uh, I don't know. I, I, this was not one of my favorite deals of the offseason. Yeah, I think when we look at uh, maybe adding the player, just in Trey Hendrickson, we both are, we both like the fit. We like, you know, him as a player. We think he's one of the more underrated guys. And to add it to a, a relatively young uh not super potent Cincinnati pass rush maybe makes sense. But I think when you compare it to a guy like Carl Lawson, it does not look great. I think we both prefer him. Again, Lawson maybe more of a true edge rusher and you know uh, they're, both, they're both I feel like more they're both I feel like four three defensive ends in my mind. That's fair. That's fair. I think Lawson may provide more more versatility. Versatility. But, that, the, uh, yeah. that even argues that they should have signed Lawson more then. then just, no. I feel like there's the argument that they probably should have. Because also, I think Lawson wanted to stay in Cincinnati. I think if he, if the Bengals, I didn't think, you know, I think that if they matched the Jets offer, I think he would have gone to Cincy. It wasn't like Lawson was saying anywhere but Cincy. So knowing that, you know, like to me, what made, I know, and I know he had a great breakout year, Hendrickson. But what made, in my mind, Hendrickson stand out so much more than Lawson to give him a longer-term deal for the same average annual value figure? But I, again, maybe since he saw, maybe the Bengals saw some saw something there. But I don't know. And for Hendrickson, he's the guy who the same time great coaching, and I'm not saying that Hendrickson, you know, is going to take just a huge step down in production. But I think it almost, and obviously the Saints did not have the money, and you know, good for Hendrickson, go get his payday. But I think also for Hendrickson, it, I would have liked to see him stay in New Orleans. And I know again the financials would not have made sense. But if I got to pick where someone landed, and I was picking for Trey Hendrickson, I would have liked to see him stay in New Orleans because in my mind, that's where I think he could have had the most success. Uh, not just for that, not and not just be a one year wonder where I think questions still arise about that. I think those are very fair points. Um, I'd like to move now. We don't have a ton of time. We're going to miss some, just to preface this, we are going to miss some signings. We don't have uh, infinite time. But just someone who got a monster contract with the Tennessee Titans at pass rusher. We mentioned him earlier. Bud Dupree signing a five-year, $82 million, six. A sixteen and a half annual contract. I I'm a fan of Bud Dupree. I've been watching him for quite a bit. You are not as high on this signing, Alex. Tell us why. Well, I have a question for you, Shine. I want to start this off. You're a Steelers fan. You've been watching Bud Dupree for pretty much his whole career. Yes. Yes. So, how I in my mind. He was an okay player before T.J. Watt, and then T.J. Watt came, burst on the scene, 
and he ele- and Watt elevated the play of everyone, including uh, Bud Dupree. Bud Dupree was one of the prime examples of this in my mind. Tennessee doesn't have anyone close to the nature of C.J. Watt on the opposite side of Bud Dupree. So are you worried that Dupree maybe benefited so much from T.J. Watt that maybe he's a guy who, if he has another great pass rusher, he can thrive, but if he's being relied on to be the number one, his production is only so-so, almost like when we see like a number one receiver and a number two receiver. Is that what – is Dupree more of a no- – a very, very, very good number two edge rusher. Boney's relied to be the alpha. You know, his his production and overall performance declines a bit. I think you're right, but not completely. Bud Dupree is a guy who I think is ready to be an alpha pass rusher. I think part of his breakout is due to TJ Watt. But then let's ta- let's take something else into account. The Steelers' pass rush without Bud Dupree, Alex, it was noticeably bad. I had a screenshot of the stats. I cannot pull it up on my phone right now because I would have to uh, stop my recording, which would be not be good. But the Steelers' pass rush went down in basically, really any defensive line category, went down significantly after Bud Dupree... um, after Bud Dupree got injured this season with an ACL, which could, which is a very valid argument to 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 make that maybe sixteen and a half million may be too much, I don't think so. I think that this is a guy that made a significant impact for a long time with Pittsburgh, uh, for the last really uh, two years, which was he was really good, had a solid season in twenty eighteen. Yes, T.J. Watt helped him to break out, but he's not going to make him take a step back. So I think Bud Dupree provides um, that kind of aspect of him where he's a very, very good pass rusher too, and that was the role he served. But also, I think he can come in and be a a potential possibly lower end, but still a, a, a solid, very solid pass rusher one which at $16.5 million a year, I think that's uh, going to be very still quite good. I still think he's going to be a better pass rusher one than Matt Judon. And let's not forget, Harold Landry is a solid pass rusher in his own right on the other side of him. So he's not going to be working with nothing, Alex. So um, the, the Tennessee, got I think, got a very good player. Bud Dupree has some concerns. But I do really, really like him a lot to make a big impact on the Tennessee Titans defense. For me, you you kind of mentioned he was coming off the torn ACL. I sixteen and a half million was a little rich for me, but I could understand it. Five years was a lot. Five years, kind of that for me stood out for a guy, and I know you know a torn ACL now is nowhere close to what it used to be. And I understand that. But with a guy coming off that series of an injury, to give him a five-year deal, especially when you look around the league and are seeing a lot of four-year deals and even some three-year deals for these pass rushers, that's kind of where the taste in my mouth about this contract kind of went sour. So 
to me, this seemed like Tennessee was very desperate going that fifth year. And I, look, four for 64, which would have been 16 and a half million, was probably a little rich, but I could live with. I think that extra year kind of put it over the top as, wow, that's a lot. This seemed like, this seemed to me like a, a move out of desperation. Uh, by the Tennessee Titans, and they did need a pass rusher. I mean, they were des- they were desperate for a pass rusher. If they were desperate for something, it would be a pass rusher. So I will say that. But going that extra year and for the same uh, per year value that was probably at the top of the mar- market, top of his market anyway, that's a lot, and that's at least for me pretty tough to swallow. Well, Alex, he has a he does have a potential out, I believe. After I want to say two years into his contract, so okay, that 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 does make me feel better. Two two years that does make me feel about that does make me feel more comfortable. Yeah, I believe he does have a potential out after two years in his contract. The way the deal is structured, I'm not exactly sure about the financials. But that is what I am viewing here. So again, I think um, he should thrive. His production likely will take a step back, but I think we're going to see him uh, truly express himself as, as as one of the better pass rushers in our game. So Alex, um, I think the last one I want to talk about um, on the on the edge is Yannick Ngakwe. So this is one of the more I think interesting signings of free agency kind of went under the radar a little bit two-year 26 million dollar a dollar uh deal with um las vegas raiders with an average of 13 million dollars a year i personally was a fan of this move i think to get a young guy in yannick ngakwe who's again his trajectory may have been going down similar to possibly a guy like a Matt Judon, except both coming from the same team, except he's, I believe, 24, 25 years old, Alex. Correct me if I'm wrong. He may be uh, 26. 20, he might be 26. He might be 26. He's, he's, he's in his mid-20s, though. He's very young. He's still very young in his mid-20s. Yeah, still a, has shown the potential to be a, a very solid pass rusher coming into his prime for $13 million a year. And... As we're seeing guys uh, get paid significantly more, this seems to me like a very solid, low-risk, high-reward signing for a team that could use a potential upgrade at edge in the Las Vegas Raiders. What say you, Alex? I completely agree. Yeah, I really, really like this deal for Vegas. We know Ngakwe's ceiling, and that's, twelve in my mind, 12, 13 sacks. And if he can hit that ceiling, well, if he's making what one million per year per sack, that's great. That's a, that's a fantastic deal for the Raiders. So I'm with you. I love this deal. You know, if you're a Raiders fan, you gotta be ecstatic about this deal. Thirteen million. And again, remember, a big concern I had for the Dupree deal was maybe the level of risk in the five years. The Singakwe deal is only two years. If it goes south. You're out of. You're definitely out of in two years with absolutely no dead money. So I really like this deal for the Raiders. As you said, high reward, not much risk. Uh, and again, 
yes, you know, could there be less risk? I guess so if it were a one-year deal. But the $13 million per year figure, when you compare it to guys like – I mean, Leonard Floyd got $16 million per year. And, look, Leonard Floyd's a nice player. I think he – you know, but I was thinking Floyd would get around fourteen million or thirteen million. So knowing a guy like Ngakwe got thirteen and a guy like Floyd got sixteen, I think it makes the Ngakwe deal stand out even more. So credit to the Raiders. I really did like this deal. And it also allows you now to kick Cleveland Furl in to inside where he possibly could be better suited for in a in a role that might fit him better. Speaking of inside I may have lied about being taking, talking about the last uh, guy in the defensive line that we were going to talk about today. Let's talk about a move that your New York Giants made to sign Leonard Williams to a monster three-year, $63 million contract, $21 million annually. I know where I stand on this. I've heard your thoughts before. What was your initial reaction to this signing, and how would you maybe preface this to Giants fans that might be a little concerned about the amount of money that that, that New York is paying him? First of all, kids, study what Leonard Williams just did over the last two years. That is how you take advantage of leverage to the highest degree. The Giants, like, handed him leverage. The Giants basically said, do you want leverage? And gave him all the leverage a player could possibly get. And Leonard Williams did a fantastic job of taking advantage of of the leverage. And that's what a player should do. So, great job by Leonard Williams. My hat is off to him. The Giants, this was, first of all, you traded for him when he was about to be a free agent. You know, they they traded for him at the trade deadline when they were 2-7. and and he was going to hit, hit free agency. Then, coming off one of his worst years, you franchise tag him, and then you can't get a long-term deal done. And then he comes off a career year, and then you know, you franchise tag him a second time, so then you have to pay him. So, this was definitely a deal that was very rich for my blood. It was definitely very high. I guess it could have been worse. There were reports that he wanted... Upwards of 22, 23, 24 million a year, which would have been just completely outlandish. I guess, you know, for the, you know, it's a three year deal. So it's not, you know, it's not super long. You know, if it goes, if it goes south the first couple years, maybe you can get out of it. Or, you know, at worst, you're stuck with it for only three years. This was definitely a high deal. And you're really banking on Leonard Williams being the guy he was last year. And I will say, Patrick Graham, their defensive coordinator, really seems to know what he's doing. And I think this might be a scheme that can really help Leonard Williams. So although, you know, it's you know, you don't really want to bank on, you know, when you're giving up this big of a contract, you don't love to bank on a career year like this and hope he does it year after year, at least, you know, the you know, by what you gave him on a year on a per year money basis. But I will say I feel like if they're, you know, he was with the Jets his whole career, and the Jets just don't do a good job of getting the most out of their players. And I feel like this Giants defensive scheme does a much better job. It looked like also Leonard Williams was having some of the more a lot of fun out there. He was kind of playing just more free and easy, despite being in a contract year. So I feel like there is evidence that says he possibly can repeat his performance. The Giants 
I, I believe they're going to take an edge rusher at uh, in the first round this year, and you know they desperately need pass rushers. So letting Leonard Williams walk, you know, you're or even just put, putting him on the franchise tag and risking losing him next year, it would have been a, a very high stakes gamble by them. But this deal was definitely a lot, and you know, twenty one million per year. That's you know that's what DeForest Buckner is making. And I will say I was critical of the DeForest Buckner deal, and it's worked out for the Colts. So maybe it will work out for the Giants. But at a first glance, it's a lot of money and very, very rich for my blood. Yeah, I, I agree, Alex. Uh, this is a guy who had a really good year last year, who showed the ability to stuff the run and get after the passer. You know, eleven and a half sacks last year, fourteen tackles for loss. I don't. I don't even know if that's warranted for a twenty-one million dollar a year guy. I I think maybe upwards of in the teens, possibly eighteen million, nineteen million for a defensive tackle of that caliber, which is very good. But the year before was not quite the same for a variety of reasons. This is you have to wonder if this could potentially be a one-year wonder. It's that's really what concerns me the most here uh, in this deal, and I think you probably would agree. Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, I I I'm hoping that this doesn't come back to bite the Giants. Um, I I but again, it's hard to question what Patrick Graham has done. I was skeptical of you know the James Bradbury signing, the Blake Martinez signings last season. And now I look like a fool because of it, because they they have been very, very good for the Giants' defense, was which was vastly underrated last season. So I'm giving your Giants a little bit of props there, Alex. <laughs> I'll say this to all the younger players. The franchise tag is not the worst thing in the world. If you use it correctly, the franchise tag can actually be your friend. Well said. Well said. And, you know... Potentially a guy like who, like Le'Veon Bell, who held out a whole year. I don't know. Maybe. He did not use the franchise tag. He did I'll not use it well. Le'Veon Bell did not use the franchise tag correctly. Yes, that would be an example of the opposite. Um, so you can certainly make it your enemy potentially. Now I want to move to a different market, a market that was very, very slow in developing, but has picked up a little bit of late, and that is of the wide receivers. So let's go to that now. Shall we, we, we'll stick with the Giants theme, Alex. Let's hear your thoughts on the Kenny Galladay signing four years, $72 million a year, or $72 million total, $18 million a year. So first of all, you're really going to skip over John Ross like that. Come on, Shai. Oh my goodness. I, well, we joke, but I actually did really like the John Ross signing for the Giants. I think he can be an underrated, low-risk move. Going to the Galladay signing, $18 million is a lot of money, and I understand that. But coming into this offseason, I expected him to get around seventeen to $18 million. So this is around what I expected him to get to begin with. Now, obviously, the market seemed to be not what he thought it was but uh but at the same time you can't say oh well Corey davis got 12 and a half and you know 
Will Fuller got 10 and Curtis Samuel got, you know, 11. You can't compare Kenny Galladay's deal to those other deals in my mind because Kenny Galladay is the only one in this free agent class to have proven he's a number one receiver. He has proven in multiple years he can be a true number one wideout. There was no other receiver like that in this free agency class. That's just, there's, I don't know how else to say that. And, you know, you can say, well, he had Matthew Stafford, you know, throwing him the ball. And I understand that. But keep in mind, Matthew Stafford was injured, you know, a couple years ago, missed half of the season. In eight games with Jeff Driscoll and David Blau, uh, Kenny Galladay still put up almost 700 receiving yards and five touchdowns to go along with 30 catches. So that's still very good numbers. That's still, you know, very good numbers, especially, you know, in the yards department. I believe he led the NFL in touchdowns two years ago as well. So Kenny Galladay has proven to be a number one wideout. And as we've seen, this is around what number one wideouts get. I personally think Kenny Galladay is better than Tyler Lockett. Tyler Lockett just signed a deal for $17 million, just over $17 million a year. So I think this is a deal that you look at some of the other receivers got, you might not like it initially. Galladay is different than all those other guys. And this is a deal that I think is going to look better down the road. First off, you look at some guys like DK Metcalf, Tyreek Hill, Stefan Diggs, Devontae Adams. Those are guys getting paid the same amount as Galladay or below Galladay. They're all going to be up for a new deal, you know, free agents within the next two years, all four of them. Chances are all four of them are going to get paid in the 20 to $21 million range. So even two years from now, Galladay is going to, in my, in my mind, significantly slide down the wide receiver yearly salary rankings. So that's first off. Second off, week 17 was just added. The NFL signed a $110 billion, with a B, billion-dollar TV deal with all their networks. And then also, fans will be back this year. So what do all these three, what do these three things have in common? Money and revenue. The NFL is going to get a ton of revenue and a ton of money. And that is going to make the sky, and that is going to make the salary cap skyrocket. Maybe not next year when there should be still a steady increase, but I believe 2023, 2024, that salary cap is going to skyrocket and significantly increase. And that's going to make these high priced deals this year look a lot better two to three years down the line. So yes, they definitely paid top dollar. They definitely paid top of the market. Yes, I admit, you know, it would have been nice. Maybe they could have gotten him at a couple million less, and that obviously would have been great for them. But at the same time, I think this is a deal that two to three years from now is going to look a lot better. And this is, again, what I expected him to make when, you know, in February and, in you know, as we enter free agency before we saw how kind of the overall free agent market transpired. Yeah, the more this sits with me, the better I feel about it. But I I still look at this, and essentially you're out years after three years. You're tied down to this contract, essentially. Whether the TV deal, which will potentially make it look better, as you said, uh, does or not. I think it probably will. 
With that being said, I think Kenny Galladay seems to me like a number one receiver. I think, although I question how dynamic he is in all of his traits, I don't know how well-rounded I think he is. I think most of his most of his uh, receiving ability comes from his ability to make contested catches and jump ball catches. And yes, those can be deep down the field. Those can be in the red zone. Those can be short yardage. But he's not someone who's going to separate. He's not someone who's going to get you know open in and out of you know be a great route runner. Not someone who's dynamic after the catch. Not someone who lines up you know can move around and be used in a variety of different ways. That is one of the things that concerns me is that he's kind of a one-dimensional receiver and that I do agree he's a number one guy and that separates him from the rest of the competition here in this market. But I And they paid him like a number one, but I think they paid him, you know, as it stands now, as a top tier or at least middle tier number one receiver when I think right now he needs to still prove especially if the injuries he's had in the last couple of years that that he that he is a mid to high tier number 1. So in my eyes he's a number 1 that I'm not convinced he's quite worth the 18 million dollar price tag yet and I think it's not a bad gamble to 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 make. I think Kenny Galladay who's still 28 years old coming into his prime could is only going to get better. But again, I, those are just my initial thoughts, kind of on the negatives, kind of taking the uh, the negative side of of the argument, I guess. In my mind, there was before twenty twenty, and I know the injuries, nothing to scoff at. But before twenty twenty, before his injury riddled season, we were talking. There was serious debate of is he a top ten receiver? Now, I probably had him on the outside of the top ten, but. You know, he's not far removed from being, you know, considered a fringe top 10 guy, which in my mind is definitely at least middle. He's a middle tier wide receiver one. He's not an elite separator, separator, but guys like him, even when they're covered, they're open. And Daniel Jones, yes, he's a young quarterback, but he's not afraid to throw in a tight coverage. He's going to realize that about Galladay early on that, hey, even if it looks like he's covered, I can still get the ball to him. I can still take a chance throwing the ball to Galladay and give my guy a chance because I know he's gonna he's gonna have the size he's gonna have the size advantage on most guys and he's gonna have a great chance to go up and make a play for me. So I'm not. It would have been great if he was an elite separator. I think he's also he's a solid route runner as well. And look, I'm not saying this was a steal. I think it definitely was probably on the high side of what I would have liked to pay him. But I thought again, coming in, I like, this is around what I expected for you know for him to cash in. So I think he's more of a. I think he is a mid tier wide receiver one. And again, I think with some of these other receivers who are going to get paid uh, over these next couple of years, I think we're going to see Galladay's deal look a lot better than than it might now. Those are those are fair points. We'll, we we will have to wait and see. Let's move on. I only want to do maybe two more wide receivers. There are multiple guys we could talk about. Let's do. Let's let 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 us move into maybe what the consensus number two wide receiver likely coming into this free agent market. 
who ended up signing only a one-year, $8 million okay, deal. Okay, I, I don't think he was a consensus number two, Shai. You don't think so? No, I, I don't think there was a consensus number two receiver. You don't think so? I know I know some people who like Juju. I know some people who like Corey Davis. I know some people who like Curtis Samuel. I don't think Will Fuller I'll throw into the mix. Maybe, maybe not Will Fuller as much, but... I don't think there was a consensus number two. I think a lot of people may have had, maybe a lot of people had Juju, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would call it so much as a consensus that heavy of a majority. All right. Well, it, if a majority at all, from the perception I had, I I believed it was a, a a a heavy majority. Perhaps it's not. I could be mistaken. In my opinion, he is the clear number two in the in this free agent class. Probably the biggest name, uh, besides Kenny Galladay in this free agent class, signs a one-year, $8 million deal back with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I was very surprised when I saw this, but I also think it makes a lot of sense for Juju Smith-Schuster, as well as the Pittsburgh Steelers. What do you think, Alex? Well, I mean, I mean, you already said it when you were introducing him. He is a clear number two. He's not a number one receiver. I mean, look, he, when he has a guy, he, when he has a number one receiver on the opposite side, like he did with Antonio Brown, he can put up elite numbers like we saw. But when defensive coordinators and defenses are game planning for him, we've seen his production shrink. We've seen his overall performance decline. He is a clear number two receiver who thrives when he's not the guy. When he is the guy, we've seen him put him we've seen him put up pedestrian numbers. So I know it's not all about numbers. I know that. But his performance has been pedestrian when he has to when the Steelers have relied on him as the number one target. He just isn't you know, he can be maybe a nice one B when you have a great one A. But I, at the same time, I think, again, he's not a number one. He's not a low-tier number one. Again, he can be a high-end number two when you have an elite number one. But, I, again, in my mind, he is a clear number two. Now, I really one year, eight million, I really like that deal for for Pittsburgh. I did I did expect him to get 12 to 13 million. And I think, actually, for a number two receiver, that's, in my mind, what you expect. So, I actually... You know, I know I've been bashing on Juju for a bit here, but I really did like uh, the one-year $8 million for the Steelers and thought it was a great deal for you guys. You know, Maybe you can get him locked up long-term now. Now Juju has a chance to hit the market again, maybe coming off a better season and a season in which the salary cap will, will rise next year. We'll see how much, but it should rise somewhat. So it, it provides Juju with you know a chance to to reimagine his market next year and the Steelers, I think get a very good deal. But again, he's not a number one. I'm going to push back. I'm not going to argue that he's number one, but I'm going to push back in the defense of Juju Smith-Schuster. Like, you know, I have to as a Steelers fan. You called him the top three receiver in the NFL years ago. He was, I'm not going to, that was a, a statement that was wrong. I'll say that. I don't think it has anything of me to do defending him now. I think that he was a very good receiver. He was, I think, leading the league in yards at the time that I said that. Um, and was extremely good. Probably would have been in consensus at least top 10. Was 
I, I agree an outlandish statement, but I said it. I said it. I take it back now. Uh, if you want to keep harping on it, you do you. But to this year, he's a 25-year-old, Alex. He's 25 years old, and he had one terrific season. We know what his ceiling is with a guy, you know, across from him. Then let's look at the, the year after. He had some injuries that year, but also the quarterback play was horrific. If we are judging him based on that season, shame on us. If he he had a quarterback play that was completely inept. Let's, let's judge him this past season then. Let's. Let's. He had 97 receptions for, I believe, around a tad over 900 yards and I believe nine touchdowns, which are very respectable numbers. You could they're, argue... They're, they're respectable, but what... what? What was his um, yards per reception? Extremely low. And I'm right. going to and tell you why. And that's, for me, that's a wide receiver too. But that, but I don't think it's fair to put that on Drew Smith-Schuster, Alex. That's the way he was used. They're going to have a new offensive coordinator this season. He was used as a safety blanket. His route tree was extremely limited. That's how uh, that's how Randy Finkner used him as Big Ben's safety valve in an offense that revolved around short passes. It was not an offense for him to succeed. Watching Juju Smith-Schuster, he showed flashes of himself. You can look at games like ten, the Tennessee Titans game. He showed that he could separate, that he could get open, and that and that he could play on the inside and the outside. He has the traits. I need to see him. Obviously, to see him do more in in a scheme that's going to utilize him, but I don't think that that's what happened last season. I'm not going to argue he's number one. So I'm not. I think he's a high end number two, and it'll be interesting to see how he does next season in a new scheme, which is hopefully going to open up his route tree a little bit more. But with that being said, on the Juju Smith Schuster side of things, makes perfect sense to go back to a system where you're comfortable. You're not going to put up numbers as the third option in Kansas City or as even the number one option in Baltimore, which is a place where no receiver is going to put up tremendous numbers in that offense, which is predominantly run heavy. But I like the deal for both sides, probably a little bit more than you do. Should we talk about... We're running a little bit low on time, Alex. I will leave the discretion to you whether or not uh, you think we should talk about Corey Davis or whether or not we should get into some of these offensive linemen before we wrap up. Uh, Corey Davis, I kind of have the same. Uh, Corey Davis, the same issues I might have with Juju. I think he's going to be a really good number two. Just don't really have an alpha one. And we saw Davis wasn't great before A.J. Brown got there. So I think Davis is more of a 1B, but he needs his 1A. And as I said, I think a number two receiver, you know, a really good one probably is in the 12 to 13 million a year range. So I thought it was a very fair deal, market market value deal for Corey Davis. So those are just my quick thoughts on it. Solid deal all the way around, but I, I don't know if he can be the number, the guy for whoever, whomever the quarterback is for the Jets come week one. Yeah, 26 years old is Davis, has room to develop. Three years, 37 and a half. I'll say this. Jets have a boatload of picks, and it's a great 
and deep wide receiver draft. So whether it's day one or day two, I could see the Jets really adding to the wide receiver core. And I also like Denzel Mims is young, and I think Jameson Crowder has is has potential in the slot. So I think they have the makings of a really good receiving core, but I feel like they're still missing that alpha male in the room. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think I like the signing a little bit less just because I think Corey Davis maybe hasn't shown us the same kind of ceiling of production that a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster or even a Will Fuller did with his potential, although a guy like Will Fuller has struggled with injuries. But I don't and, mind and the signing. Fuller's going to miss Fuller's going to miss week one with a suspension as well. Good to note. Now let's move on to a couple of offensive linemen as we begin to start to wrap up uh, this long-winded episode. Let's start with the monster contract becoming the highest paid offensive lineman in the NFL. Six years, $138 million as Trent Williams returns to San Francisco, making around $23 million a year. So I think I saw this. We have to almost treat this like it's a three-year deal because I believe there's an all the guaranteed is money, I believe, it might be front-loaded. So I think there's an out after three years. You are correct, I, Alex. I'm looking at it right now. Right. So I think if we look at it like a three-year deal and then possibly another three-year deal, I, I really like this for San Francisco. Trent Williams still might be – Trent Williams is one of, if not the best offensive tackles in the NFL. He missed that year. I liked when they traded for him, but I was a little unsure. I mean, he was dynamite for them. And I think he has shown no reason to slowing down. Obviously, injuries have kind of gotten in his way, which is why the six years kind of concerned me initially. When he signed, when that when that deal came out and it was six years, I was thinking at his age with his injury history, that definitely worries me. But knowing there's an out at, after just three years, that I really like this deal a lot better now. So I really like this deal for the Niners, especially, you know, now you have, McGlinchey on one end, you have Trent Williams on the other. Uh, you know, somebody they ha- they might have some interior offensive line questions, especially at center. With possibly, you know, there's questions surrounding Weston Richburg. Uh, I re- I like this deal. I like the overall for San Francisco and Trent Williams. Trent Williams gets his money, much deserved. And again, three years when you, when you sign a three year deal. I think that just carries a lot less uh, risk than maybe originally thought. So I like this deal for the Niners and, uh, you know, good for Trent Williams. Yeah. He and just to note, Trent Williams is 33 as this deal, right. as this That's six-year deal is being signed. Again, a, a potential out for San Francisco after three years, but just something to keep in mind is Trent Williams gets big money. I like the deal for San Francisco as well. It would have been nice to give him a little bit shorter you know, term contract. But again, I think but. that's why you you almost have to act like it's a three-year deal because if he's 36 and you're seeing, you know, a huge step in decline, yeah, I mean, you hate to do it, but you can just, you can kind of say, you know, goodbye or try to rework something out. So that's why I think knowing that all of the money, all the guaranteed money is up front, I like this deal. Yeah, I think for a guy, only reason I'm so hesitant is because he has an injury history that's been a little concerning. 
um, and really a plethora of places. But I think when he's healthy, in my opinion, he is the best offensive tackle in football. Let's move on now to some of the interior guys. Um, let's start with Joe Tooney, who is signing, who signed a five-year, $80 million, $16 million a year with the Kansas City Chiefs. Alex, just we have we don't we're running a little short on time, so we'll try to do this little these offense these last two offensive linemen pretty quickly. My initial thoughts: I was I I like the player in Joe Tooney, but I'm not sure of the fit. I I think that Kansas City's need was at tackle here, and unfortunately, Joe Tooney plays guard or and can play center. And I understand that just the general need of offensive line might be there for Kansas City, but the tackle position is more important. We saw it in the Super Bowl. That is something they needed to address. And instead, I'm a little confused on why they're spending precious, precious money. And I know the salary cap is going to skyrocket, but they're paying a lot of money to number 15, which is well warranted. But it's going to come at a little bit of a price. I agree with you, especially because there was a point in the Trent Williams negotiations where he thought he was going to the Chiefs. So there's a point where it looked like the Chiefs could be getting Trent Williams and Joe Tooney. And if that happened, you know, A++++, great job, Kansas City. But knowing that maybe you could have sweetened, if you didn't pay Joe Tooney, maybe you could sweeten the Trent Williams deal just enough to the point where you could have reeled in Trent Williams. Now, I think the Chiefs have offensive line issues across the board, so I definitely think adding Joe Tooney dramatically helps their offensive line. But I'm with you. You cut Eric Fisher, you cut Mitchell Schwartz. I think adding a you know a proven veteran who still has plenty, who still, at least in my mind, still seems has multiple years left in the tank in Trent Williams. If I'm a Chief fan, I'm a little disappointed knowing that that Joe Tooney deal may have taken, you know, may have taken away Trent Williams. And if I were Kansas City, I would have much preferred Williams over Tooney. No disrespect to Tooney. I really like him. He's becoming one of the better guards in the NFL. He's still he's younger than Williams, I believe. And the Chiefs, I think, are lucky to have him. But if, you know, if I had to choose, I would probably take Williams over Tooney. And I think that, again, that contract they gave Tooney, you possibly could have, you know, used some of that money to possibly sweeten a deal and get Williams. So I like the deal, but knowing the alternative, I think the Chiefs could have done better. I I, I agree with that, Alex. Um, not another guy who plays center going to the L.A. Chargers on a five-year, $62 million a year with an annual salary of $12.5 million a year, and Corey Lindsley. I am a huge fan of this deal, one of my favorite signings in free agency. I think $12.5 million a year uh, is a bargain, I think, for I think one of the best centers and one of the most underrated players in the NFL in Corey Lindsley, who is going to secure the middle of that offensive line and help protect Justin Herbert. It's really, I understand five years may seem like a lot for a guy who's 30, but there is an out, I believe, after two years. So I think the Chargers get a a, a great win here. And uh, 
I, I don't have that much else to say about it. I think it's a, a really great signing for LA. Yeah, I was disappointed in the Jets. Uh, I thought they were going to, the morning of free agency, I thought they were going to get at least one of the interior offensive linemen in Corey Lindsley and or Joe Tooney, and they came away with none of them. I like the Lawson and Davis signing for them. Um, but I, I don't know. I thought they, I thought the Jets should have signed at least one of the big name offensive linemen. Going to the Chargers, I really like this deal. What, twelve and a half million? I think that's great value for Lindsley. You get that veteran presence among your offensive line. I expect the Chargers to continue to bolster that offensive line throughout the draft. And then I guess kind of just my last thought on the Lindsley move: the Packers, in my mind, made a mistake. The Packers basically chose Aaron Jones over Corey Lindsley, and I'm sorry, I don't. I, I disagree with that move. Maybe Aaron Rodgers pushed it. I don't know. But I think when you're deciding between an offensive lineman, a center, and a running back, I think you gotta take I think you gotta take the offensive you know, obviously depends on level of play, but Lindsley's an all pro caliber center. And, you know, when you're deciding between an all pro caliber offensive lineman and even a great running back like Aaron Jones, I think you gotta go with the offensive lineman ten out of ten. So I'm a little just. I think the Packers made a bit of a mistake opting to go Jones over Lindsley. Yeah, Alex, I I think that's. I didn't really think about it like that at first, but I think that's a a very uh, astute observation. I would say I think uh, for a, a a fan of a team that's likely going to take a running back in the first round, or at least it feels that way. I uh, would not be thrilled with that. So you rather your team go offensive line? Exactly, exactly. Just the durability of the position is not there. But and now, the scarcity. And the scarcity. Exactly. Now, um, I know we did not cover every position in this uh, free agency recap, but I do want to end uh, with the Super Bowl champions. And just recapping what the Tampa Bay Bucks did with our time remaining. So, Alex, I just want to hear your thoughts. They brought back, I believe, all their starters, if I'm not mistaken. And anytime you win a Super Bowl, I'm all for putting the ingredients back in, make the same recipe, run it back. I mean, sometimes, sometimes uh, you know, you overdo the recipe. And the recipe can get you know a little, a little stale. But in this case, I don't think I don't think that's the case here. I'm with you. I thought uh, I actually thought all the deals they signed. I didn't think they were paid, and that also speaks to the culture that Jason Light and Bruce Aarons have built. These guys wanting to come back. We'll see how they work out the franchise tag with Chris Godwin. We'll see if they can get a long term deal done there. But you know the way they did. Things, uh, I believe, what, 17, 17 and a half, around 17 million for Shaquille Barrett. I think that's a steal. I expected him to get around 19, possibly even 20 million on the free agent market. And I think it's possibly at 18, 19 million out there. So I think 17 million for Barrett, I think, was a very good deal for Tampa. You get that alpha pass rusher back for the long term. We'll see what they do with Pierre Paul, who's a free agent next offseason. And then uh, David signing a two-year, twenty-five million dollar deal. 
you know, at 25 and a half, I think. So again, what was it? I think it was about just over, you know, 12 million years. So I thought that was another very good deal for Tampa. So I think they retained their stars, but I think especially if we're looking at the big ones, Barrett and David, I think they both got, I think they had some home, home cooking and got a little hometown discount. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think Shaq Barrett, $17 million a year, who I think was the best, uh, clear-cut edge rusher one in this class, free agent class. I think to get him for $17 million a year was a steal. Um, and just even bringing back guys like Leonard Fournette and Dominican Sue, those type of role players who I think played a significant uh, role, really, down the stretch of the season and into the playoffs, I think will be significant. And then, you know, the biggest one has got to be Ryan Suckup, three-year, $12 million deal. Um that's really no. In all seriousness, I think you were so trying to keep a straight face. I'm shy. No, hey, keep the kicker. He was reliable for you. A reliable kicker. We we take him for granted. Yes. So now, on that happy note, we will end this edition of NFL Game Time Podcast, the free agency recap. Please stay tuned for NFL Mock Draft Edition, which should be coming up soon. For Alex Rubinson, I'm Shai Dweck. See you next time on NFL Game Time Podcast.